Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence, learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create your reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today's show is a tribute to small business. In the U.S., they make up over 99% of all firms, create two-thirds of new jobs, account for 43% of GDP, and ballpark employ approximately 45% of workers. Small businesses drive economic growth and are created the way most businesses are, as small startups. That said, you may be surprised that less than 1% of all startups raise venture capital. More than three quarters of all small businesses rely exclusively on personal savings to finance. Reality check for you, about 90% of all startups fail. My guest today is doing more than his fair share to help small business owners thrive, and I applaud him for serving an enormous unmet need in business. A journalist at heart, he's been senior editor covering entrepreneurship at Inc., Forbes, and the New York Times, and has also served as editor-in-chief of Philadelphia Magazine and executive editor of George Magazine. He's a storyteller extraordinaire, and among many things I appreciate about him is his latest endeavor to connect business owners and entrepreneurs to learn from each other and succeed on their terms. Meet my friend, founder, and editor-in-chief of 21 Hats, an online community for business owners, Lauren Feldman. Welcome to Wait, Sell It Skillfully, Lauren. So happy to be here, Molly. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a real treat for me, and I've been so wowed by how you and your tribe have really persevered in these COVID times. And it's um, 21 Hats has been an amazing support to business owners through this pandemic. Um, and there's so much for listeners to learn about their own journeys and navigating really insane times. To start, though, I appreciate if you would let listeners in on your own journey. Uh, and I know you're deep in finding and fulfilling your own true north. I am trying. I'm trying. What, where would you like me to start? Well, I always like getting back to you know earliest childhood memory or just a little bit of what it was like in the Feldman clan when you were a young tyke. Um, you know, I was, I was, I was slow to mature in, in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, when I look back on my childhood, I, I remember being uh, kind of timid and shy and it, it took me a long while to get comfortable in in groups and with other people and to kind of come out of that shell a little bit. So it's yeah, it's sometimes a little bit painful to to remember the opportunities that I didn't I wasn't ready to seize back then. Um, but I think it did help me prepare as, as I figured it out. I, I got better at it. I can relate to that being painfully shy and listeners have heard my my stories of uh, really just terrorized my first day of, of kindergarten. Did you have siblings to hang out with? I did not. Only child. Ah, so that explains a little bit. I get over the, the a bit of the painfulness to think about it. Do you recall what it was? You know, kind of there's an internal kid conversation that helped you come out a little bit of your shell. You know, it really took me to high school. It wasn't a, 
it wasn't a, a real, you know, little kid thing. Um, I, the, the, the thing I loved mo- to do most as a child was to play sports, uh, especially baseball, which is the one that I was best at. And, um, you know, I, I was a very good practice player who kind of wilted in games. I just froze and didn't play up to my abilities. And it, it really took me till like the last couple of games I played on my high school baseball team. I was good enough to start because I was good in practice, but I, I you know, I, I, I kind of, I didn't play to win. I played not to lose. And it was really the last few games of my high school career where I started to get comfortable. And, and I think that that changed me as a person too. I sort of realized, you know what, there's no point in not being a little bit more confident. I can do some of this stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to try. I appreciate you sharing that because I think that happens for a lot of people and it's not that easy to verbalize. I really appreciate you putting it out there. And then I can imagine the epiphany of, okay, like here I am game on. And I find it somewhat ironic because here you are giving voice and encouraging so many others, you know, so um, for listeners, I think it really to help serve others, we have to also think about what we need and to be able to get hold of what's going on within. And once we can move through that, understand it, we can really start to flourish and help others. Um, your writing, Lauren, did were you always a good writer? I mean, the listeners also know that I'm not a good writer, so I'm always in awe of those of you who write so well. Um, you no, know, I, I think it's um, it was a learning journey for me. Some people do it naturally. Um, I'm always running into people who are really good at lots of things and can also write really well. And that just annoys me because I spent so much time trying to be a good writer. Um, but that said, I did figure out in, uh, in school, probably in a little bit, maybe middle school and high school, I, in doing writing assignments, uh, occasionally a teacher would pull something I'd written and, and read it to the class. And um, you know, sometimes it was because I, I, I found I could be a little bit funny and the class would laugh and I just loved that. And that kind of set me down the path. Oh, so you had a, a affinity for humor. A little bit, a little bit. I would, would never have guessed. Ha <laughs> uh, So the sports, <laughs> what else drove your youth? Parents, tell me a little bit about the influence your parents played on you. Um. My father actually passed away when I was 13, and that, of course, was somewhat traumatic. Um, but um, it also, you know, I, I told you I was late to mature in a lot of ways. There were a couple of ways that I was early to mature, and that was kind of in my relationship with my mother and in the household. Once my father was gone, I had to do things that I probably wouldn't have had to do for for some time. And um, I I think I grew up a little bit in in that dynamic, but I was still, you know, lost among, (laughs) among my peers and in school, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that t- that's that's you know I I can't I just can't imagine. And did you have other male uh, relatives or adults that filled in a bit? Not really. I kind of had to figure it out on my own, and I think that was related to the to the struggle as well. 
Yeah, that's a lot for a young person. To, but I think, to- you know, uh, to sort of connect the dots the way you started to do before, I think it, it took me a, a long time, and maybe I'm jumping too far ahead here, but I, I did eventually start meeting entrepreneurs, and I met these people who just do nothing but seize opportunities. And I think because I was so slow to get to that point, I kind of fell in love with seeing what other people were able to do. So do you remember the first time you had the aha of this person taking the bull by the horns and starting something? You know, it, 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 as with most things I've learned, it took a while to, to penetrate and sit in. Um, if, for me, you know, I, I, I kind of had one journalism career and then discovered um, entrepreneurship. And that happened after a number of fits and starts and some success, some failure. I wound up at Inc. Magazine uh, about 20 years ago and, and met some, you know, really great people, especially Bo Burlingham, who was kind of the star writer at Inc. at the time. Uh, I was fortunate enough to become his editor, and it, you know, it was kind of an odd thing, me editing the, the star writer, because I knew nothing about entrepreneurship at that point, but he took me under, I, I knew a little bit about magazine journalism, and I could, um, you know, I could function in that world, but Bo took me under his wing and started to introduce me to entrepreneurs and just really opened my eyes to the way you know, businesses really get started and built in this country, which I knew nothing about previously. So I'm curious, before we get back to this professional career in school, what did you study? I'm just wondering what you thought about while you were in, in, um, in, in uh, college. <laughs> Both in, in high school and in college, I wound up gravitating toward the school newspaper and spending way too much time there, <laughs> especially in college. Uh, I became the sports editor of my college newspaper and, you know, easily put 40, 50 hours a week into that. I treated it as if it were a full-time job. Um, and I have the, the grades to, uh, to show for it. Um, and I, I do look back and regret that sometimes, but I, I did kind of find a career that way. Yeah, well, you know, kind of, uh, I guess the universe that you're, the universe was was talking to you. Uh, so I have met Bo. He is a phenomenal mentor, and gosh, so lucky that he just took you under his wing. Um, for the folks in interested in writing and and just the career pathing, share us a little bit. Like, what's that industry like? And it's under a lot of change. So, um, kind of wondering your thoughts on it. Well, you know, for one thing, it, there's been so much change since I came out uh, of college. Um, you know, <laughs> when I got started in the 80s, uh, we used to write on typewriters, for one thing. Uh, the, the internet didn't exist. Um, and that that made a, a huge difference in all sorts of ways. One, you know, it's just so much easier to report a story now to get answers to questions, to get information than it was back then. Uh, but also, you know, obviously the, the competitive, competitive landscape has changed so dramatically. I mean, back then newspapers and magazines were all about print and thought they had the world to themselves and, you know, essentially a monopoly and could do what they want and would always succeed. 
And for a long time, it kind of was that way until, until the internet and that just changed everything. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't know for sure sh- if I had known what was coming, would I have chosen this path? I'm not sure. Um, maybe, but it's, it certainly proved to be a lot more difficult than I expected it to be. So take us through your career journey. 20 years ago, you meet Bo, and then how did you evolve and twist and turn and other high points, some low points, I imagine? Well, b- before that, I, um, I started at newspapers. Uh, I started as a sports writer. I wound up deciding that I didn't like covering sports just because too many people wanted to do it. There was a lot of competition. Everybody, not everybody, a, a lot of people uh, wanted to be sports writers. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of learned it that the first, the first thing I covered for the Columbus Dispatch, which was one of the first newspapers I worked for, was a Big Ten basketball game. It was this uh, opening of the Big Ten season. It was in Iowa. And there must have been, I don't know, 200 journalists there to cover this kind of nothing game. And, you know, when the game was over, you, you couldn't go in the locker room. You couldn't interview the athletes or the coaches individually. They brought them into a room where you were with, you know, a hundred other reporters, journalists, and, you know, maybe you got a chance to ans- ask a question, but you probably didn't. You just had to listen to what everybody else did. And it just didn't appeal to me. And I started thinking, you know, from that moment on that I'm, I want to try to find a different role in journalism. And and then there was an opening on the business desk not too long after that. And I switched and, um, you know, I found what I, what appealed to me about sports writing was the people stories. And I found that you could do the same thing in business. And it was kind of similar in the sense that people kept score in business as well. It was just a, a different kind of score. It involved success and failure, um, but in terms of, you know, money and survival, not, you know, a sports score. Uh, but, but underneath it all, there were people stories and they, they didn't get told as often or as well. There was less competition for them. There was an assumption among, I think, both journalists and readers that a lot of business would just be boring. And I found that underneath it, there were people stories that weren't boring at all. And that really appealed to me. And really my, my first taste of this was uh, I started covering fast food companies in Columbus because Columbus, Ohio is an interesting place. They it's, it's been known as kind of test city USA. I'm not sure that's as true today as it was back when I was there, but um, it's, it's got a, a kind of an independent media market. If you buy time on Columbus TV, it's really only seen in the Columbus area. And uh, it's it's kind of middle America in all sorts of ways. And Procter & Gamble was right down the road in Cincinnati. And they found that if they tested products in Columbus and they succeeded, they'd pr- probably succeed nationally. And the same thing was true with fast food chains. And Wendy's was one of the first one to come out. A lot of people in Columbus became millionaires because of Wendy's. And that kind of started this gold rush. And I got there in time to cover the gold rush a little bit. A bunch of people saw Wendy's success and said, hey, I can do that. And all these bizarre uh, fast food chains started uh, with the belief that if they worked in Columbus, they would work nationally. Um, I remember there's one, somebody decided to create a combination Italian and Chinese food fast food chain. It was called Prosciutti and Chins. And... (laughs) 
the idea was they had a central kitchen with sort of, if you remember, photomat booths, you know, these little kiosks. They would set up kiosks around the, the town. And if you placed an order, the, it would be delivered from the central kitchen. It was, I, you know, I don't know, it was just crazy. It did not last very long, but they were, were able to raise money. And in a way, it was like, I, I wound up thinking it was a, once the uh, dot com bubble burst, I thought I looked back and thought, you know, that fast food bubble was kind of a precursor because I saw the same thing happen uh, with fast food chains. Any because so many people had done so well with Wendy's, anybody could raise money for almost anything fast food related in Columbus for a period of time in the eighties, and it was so much fun to cover. I don't know if that answers your question. Well, it's just, I think it's <laughs> hilarious that I just said, I can't, I mean, when I think about what's going on today with food, right, we, we want it all natural and it's all organic or whatever. And, and I think listeners must be like, what? I'm like, yeah, that was a thing, like rampant rise of anything fast food, easy and not necessarily super healthy for you. And that you're Lauren Feldman's in the middle of it. And that's hilarious. Um, so how did you, you, so you're in that Columbus world and how do you make the career choice or what, what opportunities opened up for you to move on? I had a friend who uh, got a job at Philadelphia Magazine, which uh, has was one of the first city magazines. Most cities have something like it, but it was one of the first, especially one of the first to be a, a real journalistic publication as opposed to something owned by the Chamber of Commerce or you know interests that were just looking primarily to promote uh, things about the, the city. Uh, they did great journalism at Philadelphia Magazine from, I don't know, I think the early 60s on. Um, and uh, he got a job there and they decided they were looking for a business reporter and he put me up for it and I got a trial and I got the job and I discovered uh, long form journalism and I, I really fell in love with it uh, first as a writer. Uh, the, the different thing about it is unlike with a newspaper, it, it gives you opportunities to really shine the light on a topic and really explore it in depth and take, you know, sometimes ridiculous amounts of time to, to really understand something. And I, I just like that so much better than doing, you know, the best 12 inch story I could do about whatever uh, for a newspaper. And I, I felt I'd found my calling and, uh, and, and really loved that uh, about being at, at Philadelphia magazine. And, and I kind of, I, I left there a couple of times and went back a couple of times uh, eventually as editor of, of the publication um, and, and in many ways, that was my dream job, although it, it was it was difficult in the sense that the magazine was owned by a father and son team, a, a true family business. And the, the, the father was, truth to tell, a little bit old and cranky. And the son was a little bit frustrated because he wasn't in charge yet. And they would kind of pull their editor in different directions. And it, it was, it, they could be difficult to work with. It was, you know, my first real taste of what a family business is. Um, but it was, like I said, it was my dream job. I loved being involved at that publication. It, it was at, at a city publication like that. You can, you can cover anything. You could cover sports and politics and business and music and food and anything. And, and that's what really appealed to me. I also loved being part of a community. It was the kind of thing where you, you could walk down the street uh, or, or go to the right restaurant 
and run into people who read the magazine or who appeared in the magazine. And, um, you know, you didn't have to necessarily pick up a phone or uh, shoot somebody. I mean, texting didn't exist when I was there uh, initially or, or send a text to somebody to, to find out what was going on. You could just walk around. And, and I loved that aspect of it. But uh, the owners were, were difficult. And as a result, they tended to hire and fire their editors very quickly. It was a little bit like being manager of a baseball team. You, you knew it was, it was only a matter of time. Um, and uh, I went into it knowing that and went into it, you know, just hell bent on doing the best job I could and having as much fun as I could as long as it lasted. And uh, it lasted about two years. Unfortunately, I w- would have loved to, for it to have gone on longer. Uh, we had a lot of success in a lot of ways. I, I felt like I was doing a really good job, but um, actually, I, I could have used your help then. There were there were things I didn't know how to say skillfully. Um, I, w- I was... I was still maturing as an employee, as an editor, as a human. And, you know, sometimes I think I, I thought it was enough just to be right. I didn't realize how important it was to communicate why I thought I was right. And um, they, were, they were difficult to work with, but I could have done a better job of, of working with them. There were, you know, there were mistakes that I made that contributed to the, you know, the relationship unraveling and, and my ultimately getting fired. Uh, so I, I do look back on that and think, I, you know, if I had figured out a better way to communicate these things instead of just being confident that I was right. Um, I might've lasted at least another few months. (laughs) I am sure listeners and I certainly can relate having been uh, really focused on being right far longer in my life than I would care to admit. So I, uh, I share, (laughs) believe me, a lot of empathy for you, Lauren. Uh, Before we segue to your current Role. I, I remember reading, you did a stint managing a baseball team. Do you want to share a little bit of how you, you pursued that passion? It, it wasn't exactly managing. One of the, uh, during, when, when I was working for magazines, um, you know, again, one of the things I loved about that was the opportunity to do all sorts of different kinds of things. Um, although, you know, my interest in sports kind of ran through much of it. Uh, at one point, I got an assignment uh, for GQ magazine to do a travel story in the Dominican Republic, where um, some of your baseball fan listeners may know uh, a tremendous percentage of Major League Baseball players come from. Uh, one town in particular, San Pedro de Macaris, uh, is a town that's famous pr- for producing shortstops at one point in the 80s. And I've lost track of this. I don't know where it stands now, but close to half the shortstops in Major League Baseball came from this one town of about 40 or 50,000 people in the Dominican Republic. Uh, so I did a travel story. Uh, what you can see as a baseball fan, if you go to the Dominican Republic and go to their winter league games, they, their season really gets going when ours is over. So you can go down there and, you know, November, December, January, a little bit of February and see great baseball, uh, often major league quality or close to major league quality baseball. Uh, and you can also say at a fabulous resort, which I got to do on GQ's dime, uh, Casa de Campo uh, is a world famous resort. So I, I wrote about that experience and made a great friend. There was a scout 
working for the Texas Rangers, uh, who was trying out Dominicans, looking for players to sign and ultimately send to play in the Texas Rangers minor league system and hopefully ultimately in the, on the major league team. He, um, he had been born in the Dominican Republic, but raised in Queens in New York City. Uh, his name is Omar Manaya. He went on to be the general manager of the Mets at one point, but at that time he was a scout with the Rangers. He was living in New York City most of the year, and uh, we became close friends. And a couple of years later, my wife and I were looking to move from New York City to Philadelphia and uh, take a little bit of, break, of a break from our career. We were looking for an adventure. We thought we might travel around Europe or something. And he said, come work for me. Uh, work at my training camp in San Pedro. Uh, maybe we'll find a shortstop. And I you know, I'd played baseball in high school, and he knew I could at least coach first base, hit a few grounders, maybe pitch some batting practice. Uh, but my wife was actually valuable. Um, she speaks Spanish very well. And he needed someone to teach English to these 17 or 18-year-old kids, many of whom didn't even really have a high school education, who were about to get sent to play baseball in towns all over the south uh, of this country. And they needed to be able to walk into a fast food restaurant and order something or go into a, a Target and uh, handle themselves. Um, so she, uh, we, we spent four months Oh, one year down there, uh, me pretending to be helpful and my wife actually being helpful, teaching uh, a very important skill to, to kids who desperately needed it. Wow. That is so amazing. What a great chapter in you and your wife's journey in life. We, we loved every minute of it. It was, it was a great experience. And we, we kept in touch with a lot of those people for a, for a long time. There were you know, it, it, people don't realize, you know, a lot of people are aware of the Dominicans who make it in the major leagues, but for everyone who makes it, there are a hundred or so who don't make it. And it's, it's a really heartbreaking thing. And there, there's just incredible pressure on them because they probably have nothing to go back to if they don't make it. And I mean, people, a lot of kids who, who get sent to the minor leagues for the first time come up to this country and they, at the end of their season, they face a choice do I go back to the Dominican Republic and try to continue my career? Or am I not going to make it? Am I going to be one of the 99 who don't make it? In which case, I should just stay here illegally and see what I can do because there's nothing for me if I go back. And, you know, there are players who might otherwise have actually made it who give up on themselves and decide because you know, if they stay here and they don't have a visa, they, they can't continue to play. They've got to do something else, uh, you know, get some kind of, of job or something. Uh, it's, it's just a, you know, a heartbreaking thing. And we wound up, we, we made a lot of friends with these kids that we worked with down there. And some of them ended up moving in with us for periods of time. Uh, up here as, you know, we tried to help them figure out what they could do. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was an amazing experience in a lot of ways. Wow. Could you synthesize one or two things that you think really um, that you learned or that helped you be a better you as a result of that experience? Um, probably not well, uh, but, you know, part of it is, it's obviously it's getting out of the bubble that we tend to live in as, as Americans and see what it's like in the rest of the world. So uh, understanding the true dynamic of what it meant for these kids, uh, 
you know, if they have baseball talent, they get signed at a very early age. They're supposed to be, I forget now, I may get this wrong, 17 or 18, um, but they often get signed earlier um, down there. At least back then, scouts knew how to fake a birth certificate. And, um, you know, they wanted to lock up talent. If they saw talent, they would sign it. That, that You know, they were paying them very little money. So there was very little risk for the major league team uh, to, to sign them. Uh, understanding that world, the pressures they lived in uh, um, under, uh, it, it just gave you an entirely different appreciation for for what we have here. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I love it. Uh, okay, so back on the, the writing career, I guess, you know, this, I love what you're doing with 21 Hat. So perhaps take us to how you what you saw in the universe, tell listeners a, a bit about it. And then, you know, I know it's been a crazy 18 months and you've, you've created this kind of reality radio show, I guess I would say, that's, that's got your listeners kind of gripped by the stories of your entrepreneurs. Well, the, thank you for asking. The background uh, is that I, I did, as you said, spend time at, at Inc. and then the New York Times and then at Forbes. Uh, basically, trying to do the same thing, trying to cover the same territory, the world of entrepreneurship and business ownership uh, and what it really takes to to build a business. But each of those publications had different hopes and dreams and uh, and missions. And uh, I learned something different at each one. At each one, I had the experience to, you know, work with really smart people and learn from them. You know, I told you about Bo at Inc., which was my my real start in this area. Um, but at, at each one, I, I felt also kind of limited. Each one had its practices in place, and I felt there was an opportunity to do more. And at each stop, I would build on what I was hoping to do a little bit, but never quite got to where... I thought we could go and I, I always pitched my ideas and they were often very well received, except they were not high on the priority list uh, because they didn't completely match the, the mission of the publication. The New York Times obviously is a big general, general interest publication. I was competing with things like a cooking app, uh, which obviously everybody eats, not everybody owns a business. So, <laughs> The, the very smart people I was working with who were saying uh, not yet to my ideas, you know, they were smart people. They do what they were doing and what they were doing was right for, for their publication, but I still felt there was an opportunity there. And ultimately, after learning a lot and trying a lot of different things at each of those publications, I left Forbes in September of 2018 to, to try to start my own thing and bring together all the things that I had learned at each of those publications and create what I hoped uh, would or will be uh, the definitive community for business owners, especially a particular slice, a, a big slice of business owners that I think tends to get overlooked. Um, it's business owners who don't take venture capital, who aren't necessarily trying to change the world, uh, who, uh, you know, through the fault of people like me uh, in, you know, at big media companies, don't get paid quite enough attention. I worked with a lot of really smart business journalists who didn't understand why I was so interested in this particular part of the market. To them, all they heard was small business and, and really just the word small. They understood that it was important in the aggregate 
they didn't understand why I found that an interesting space to cover. Uh, who cares about any one little small business? What difference does it make? Look at what Uber is doing. Look at what WeWork is doing. You know, look at these huge companies that are changing the world. That is what our readers want to read about. And that's what's going to advance our careers as journalists. So that's where we're going to focus. And I, I, you know, I felt differently. I felt as though they didn't fully appreciate that those businesses were getting started with other people's money. You know, they thought people on Wall Street took risks or people in Silicon Valley took risks, but they, and they do, but primarily with other people's money. Uh, a business owner who starts a, a, a business without that kind of backing is risking their own money, often their own house. And I found that a lot more compelling. So that's what I, I, I tried to focus on when I, when I left Forbes. Um, I partnered with somebody initially um, who was looking to do something similar because he had a, a number of businesses that served entrepreneurs. Unfortunately, we ran into, he ran into a cash crunch a little bit before the pandemic hit. And then we ran into the pan pandemic. And ultimately he said to me, you know, I, I, I thought I was going to be able to put money into this. I can't, I've got to focus on my core businesses, but he was great about it. He, uh, he gave me ownership of the things we had built and you know some severance, which gave me a runway to try to make a go of it myself, which is what I'm doing now and what I've been doing since October. Um, so, as you said, the, you know, the one of the first things we started with is a podcast called the Twenty One Hats Podcast, in which I've been tracking the journeys of uh, initially uh, six, now seven, eight uh, businesses through the uh, through the crisis. Um, we started you know, just before the pandemic hit, obviously not knowing that it was coming. I wasn't sure where the podcast would go, but once the pandemic hit, the, the individual narratives of these businesses became so compelling that I wound up sticking with these storylines a lot longer than I expected. Uh, of these businesses, I talked to three of them every week. Uh, we, sat, we sit down on Thursdays, we have a one-hour conversation, and we just kind of talk about what's going on. And as you can imagine, when the crisis hit, those, some of those conversations became very emotional. Uh, a couple of the businesses were not at all sure they were going to survive. A couple were doing okay, but still a little bit on the edge. And a couple were doing far better than they could have hoped uh, had there not been a pandemic, because they just happened to be in the right place at the right time. So uh, it was a real, you know, gut-wrenching mix of conversations for for quite some time i first love how you really stayed true to the need that you saw and i remember earlier conversations when you were with some of those other firms and you know again that they have to do what they need to do and um i just i just really applaud your staying true to what you find interesting and, and people you think you can help and you know, listeners know that when we thought, think about, say, it skillfully about you know being who you are, saying what needs to be said. This notion of the courage to be vulnerable, to be real, is where it starts. We want everyone else around us to be real, but it's about modeling that um, ourselves. And I and you know, I've listened to a bunch the the conversations. Maybe you could just take folks through a recent one, but they're very raw and very real. And the 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 opportunity for them to come together and support each other. I mean, just share with us some of the, the things that business owners are telling you, because I, I just find it such a necessary thing. And it's not like a behind the scenes in the back room. And these are real things that need to be upfront and 
and and um, solve for. And the more we can solve them together, gosh, it just seems like it'll be better. <laughs> you uh, you really put your finger on it. You're you're exactly right. The whole key to you know whatever we're able to offer in this podcast is exactly what you pointed out, which is the willingness of these business owners to be vulnerable and transparent and to to truly share. And that that's an unusual thing. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've covered politicians and athletes and people in all walks of life. There are a few people who are as willing to share their mistakes as entrepreneurs. I think there, there's a greater um, a greater sense that, you know what, we all make mistakes. And if I can save somebody from going down this rabbit hole, I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell people what didn't work for me and maybe it'll, it'll help them out. Um, so I, I think that's a big advantage I have. There are more entrepreneurs uh, who are willing to do that than, you, than one might expect. That said, not everybody's willing. And I, you know, you have to find the right people. And I'm, I've just been very fortunate, having done this as long as I have, to have met uh, a tremendous number of people. One, one of the uh, people on the podcast who's been terrific is a guy named Paul Downs. He has a business outside of Philadelphia that makes custom conference tables. He sells them to law firms and um, to investment banking firms, but also to other small businesses, uh, business owners who want to make a statement with a, a, a really nice, well-built uh, wood table. Um, Paul uh, actually approached me when I was at the New York Times and I had just started a blog uh, where I had contributors, people like Paul, writing about their experience. And he approached me with an email that said, you know, I've been reading the blog. It's pretty good. You're missing one thing. You should have somebody write about what it's like to be running a business that's failing. And obviously that got my attention. You, you know, that's not the typical PR release you get as a journalist, I can assure you. Um, but this did happen in 2009. So there was a lot of failure going on. It was a tough time in the economy. And, you know, that's why Paul was in trouble. And he, and he felt he was headed toward bankruptcy. And he was offering to me to write about that experience as the business continued to collapse and ultimately you know, what it was like to go through bankruptcy. And he thought that would be of value to other business owners. So I, I mentioned that just because it just establishes his mindset. Happily for all of us, he managed to turn the business around. And he, he actually thinks that writing for the blog for the New York Times contributed to that. He wound up getting a, a, a big book con contract and wrote, wrote about the experience, uh, wrote, wrote a terrific book about it. Um, he, he, he started approaching his decisions differently. I think he, he started being more deliberate. He started thinking, you know what? I might have to explain why I did this in the New York Times. So I'm going to give it a little bit more thought. Maybe I'll sleep on it tonight and then I'll do it tomorrow. And he, he you know, in part because of that, in part because he just, he had a great product. He, he makes beautiful tables. He wound up surviving and ultimately thriving. And he shared, he can, because he thought it was going away, he was willing to share everything, but he kept doing that. And when he made a profit, he told us what the profit was. He told us what he took out of the business to the penny, either as salary or as, as a, an owner's draw. Uh, he just shared everything. He told us about firing an employee uh, who'd been there for 20 years or something like that, uh, a longtime employee who had been really helpful at points, but had become uh, you know, kind of toxic at the company for a variety of reasons. It, you know, it's the kind of, again, the kind of thing most business owners aren't going to share that. 
Paul figured others can learn from this experience. I'm going to write about how I handled this. And by the way, he, he made some big mistakes. Um, as I recall, the biggest one was he, he didn't really prepare the employee. The employee didn't see it coming. And that's kind of the first rule of, of firing. You know, someone should know uh, if they really need to be fired, they should know that before it happens. They should get fair warning. And, and Paul, in retrospect, realized he, he hadn't completely done that. And um, he, he was willing to share that. And to answer your question, I mean, that's the kind of conversation that we have on, on the podcast. Owners talk about what's working and what's not working um, in all kinds of ways. We have one, uh, a woman named Dana White, who has a chain of hair salons based in Detroit. She, she acknowledged to us, I think probably as early as March of 2020, that she wasn't at all sure she was going to survive. I mean, she knew she, at this point, I think she knew she was headed into a lockdown. Uh, we didn't know the PPP money was coming. How was she going to pay rent? What was she going to do? She had no idea. It was, it was really traumatic. But her journey has been amazing. She, she wound up getting PPP money. The, the lockdown uh, eventually eased. Uh, but she stayed in business, although she had to close one, uh, one of her two locations. But then she uh, she won a two hundred thousand uh, dollar uh, prize at a Detroit demo day, uh, which uh, helped sustain her and and pointed her in a different di direction. She wound up making the decision to sell franchises. She's now in the process of um, preparing to do that. Um, and of course, we, we've talked about all of this uh, along the way. And now she's actually, she's been reached out to um, by uh, people affiliated with the US military. They're interested in having her salons on military bases around the world, which could be just an incredible opportunity. So she's figuring out how to, how to navigate that. Um, so it, it's... You know, again, you, sometimes you hear these stories, but it's usually in retrospect. It's after somebody has hit it big and they remember back to the way it was, um, you know, 10 years ago or something when they were trying to figure it out. And sometimes they'll share um, minor ups and downs, but it, it's not like living it in the moment and, and talking about, you know, what am I going to do later today when I have to make this decision? And, and that's what we try to do on the podcast. Uh. It's so powerful, awesome for the success, you know, for the uh, to support the success of the business owners and the entrepreneurs for sure. And, you know, the number one thing I see missing in the world is this lack of empathetic understanding for what it's like in other shoes. For, for the folks who have a salary that comes in and, you know, it's a bigger organization, we're not, it's not worried about it going out of business, to really imagine what it would be like if you're responsible for payroll and if you don't make it, these people lose their jobs and these number of families are out of business. And, you know, as I said, it's almost 45% of um, the, the folks are working in smaller organizations like this. I would just hope listeners would appreciate that, you know, and, and I get from time to time on American Express, the credit card, like go spend money at small businesses. And, you know, I, I think it it's really important, Lauren, what you're doing that not just the business community, but the consumers and and people start to appreciate what's going on for our um, you know fellow workers around the country. I, again, I think you're you're exactly right. Um, and and one thing that is least appreciated, I think, is 
how lonely it can be to do this. Because first of all, so few people understand what it's truly like. So few people understand that it's routine for a business owner to borrow against his or her home, uh, to use a home as collateral to get money to build a business. I mean, that, that's, that's commonplace. It's routine. And, and yet, how many of us are, are risking our homes to, to build something? It's, it's, it's a scary prospect. But on top of that, who do you talk to about it if you're a business owner? It can be hard to find uh, your tribe uh, you know, for, for all sorts of reasons. There are business peer groups. Some of them are very expensive. Um, you, ha- you have to have the right facilitator. Sometimes the, the, you know, the fit just isn't quite right. For a lot of owners, they, they don't have that. And you, you really, if you're struggling, you can't talk to your employees about it because you don't want to scare them if, if things are struggling. You may not be able to talk to your spouse about it uh, or your significant other because they may not be able to handle the, you know, the, the potential ups and downs. Uh, your friends may be really smart but have no idea what you're going through if they're in professions or some other kind of, of job. Uh, so, you know, that's, you know, that is the hope with the podcast. It, at least you can listen to other people going through similar experiences, trying to figure out how to navigate these you know, crazy times. Yes, I, uh, you know, and, and you know, mistakes we all know are essential to uh, succeeding. And the idea is to make new mistakes. And if you can learn from others and do so, <laughs> that's great. I want to make sure I, we don't forget. Is it 21hats.com? 21hats.com? That, that's exactly right. And, you know, obviously the whole idea is to, to build a business. You, you have to wear a lot of hats and, and nobody's prepared to wear all of them. We, you know, everybody, no matter how successful they are, need, needs help with some aspects of building a business. Yeah, I love the way you're normalizing that and asking for help as a strength and being there for each other as a strength. And I'm so thrilled to hear Dana and Paul, the turnarounds of their businesses, um, and I'm sure in no small way to, to the community you've created. Um, so, Lauren, let's switch because we always do the say it skillfully. Now it's time for the say it skillfully scenario. So, any challenging conversation you have, or maybe you're hearing that your uh, entrepreneurs are having, and we can talk it through and unpack that for listeners. Um, let me think. I guess I would, I, th- I think the, the conversation that I would focus on is. Uh, the, the one with employees, trying to get them on board. It, it can be such a, a, a difficult conversation. Everybody has their own interests. Everybody has their own skills. Everybody has their own needs. To get a, a bunch of people pulling in the same direction is a real challenge. And, um, you know, as I, was, I mentioned the, the thing that Paul went through, uh, there's there's somebody else on the uh, on the podcast named Jay Goltz. Uh, actually, we just published uh, an episode t- today that was just a one-on-one conversation between Jay and me, in which he talks about how uh, he he spent much of his career uh, putting out fires as he was building his business uh, until he realized at a certain point that what he really had to do was fire the arsonists, um, and you know that's. A lot of people don't want to face that. It's 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 difficult. Nobody enjoys doing that, but it's it's such an important part of building a business. I mean, you know, one thing everybody knows you have to delegate to be able to build a, a business. The owner can't do everything his or herself. But if you're not delegating to the right people, it's not going to work. Uh, which is something that Jay and I talked about in, in this particular episode. It's 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 
uh, a difficult, painful aspect of building a business that that ultimately everybody has to face. And um, you know, what one example of it is actually a guy named Doug Tatum wrote a a great book called No Man's Land. And any business that grows that has any success is going to get to the point where the things that initially work don't work anymore. Suddenly you get a big order and you don't have enough people to fill it. It's an incredible opportunity. Maybe you get a chance to sell to Walmart or Whole Foods or something like that. You've got to staff up to do it. You've got to um, make sure you have people in in the right seats. And maybe somebody who was an old friend who's been really loyal, who has been great to this point is in a role that made sense until now, but it doesn't make sense anymore. And what do you do with that person? It can be heartbreaking. It can be incredibly painful, but, but you got to do something. Um, that's, yeah. that's a conversation yeah. that I would point toward. Uh, yeah, I got it. Let's just go through that. I think this is, and I feel the pain and, um, you know, pain may not be, uh, what is it? Pain's not optional. Suffering is that. And I, and I encourage folks to think about when we don't have the right people on the right bus doing the right thing, it's not helping anyone. And to, to your point, the, you know, I think the compassion and empathy that you have, the, the owners have for their people is just realizing, Hey, first, you know, as the owner, you need to just help folks realize this is you know, why we're here, what we're doing. And so people just appreciate like how did this whole thing move and, and understanding their roles and I, I know that seems kind of basic, but oftentimes leaders aren't as clear for the folks, you know, feet on the street, how it all comes together and how what you do affects us. And to make sure that people understand that and that realize that if you do X and don't do X, it affects all of us. Um, and so that I, I'd say that's kind of a system lens. And then when we've outgrown people, I think part of that is being clear on what the new needs are because we, what got us here doesn't get us there. And then saying, hey, you know, I'm happy to help you get here. And in some cases, maybe the person can get there and we're not giving them a chance, but we have to be clear on what they need to do. And if it's not something they want to do or they can do, that's a conversation about saying, hey, I want to put you in a place where you can really rock it. And I don't think this is going to be it for you or for us. And to be saying that in a caring and loving, but also direct way is I think what people have the opportunity to find um, their authentic voice, because you're not doing anyone a favor, least of all yourself. I love fire the arsonist, right? When we don't take action on that. So hopefully that gives folks a, a few ideas how they might approach that. Um, okay. Just, this time is flying by. So um, I'd love to, to ask a, a few wrap up questions, Lauren, for the folks who you've been working with or who've been on the site, what's the biggest compliment they've given you? Um, you know, this, this has been an incredible experience for me. I I've so loved having the opportunity to, to try to do what I've always wanted to do and to be (laughs) kind of master of my own destiny and to be able to, to do it the way I think it should be done. Um, I haven't, I have a lot of work to do. There are a lot of things I haven't figured out, but, but what keeps me going is that I do get a lot of unsolicited emails from people thanking me for providing this community, you know, both for the podcast and uh, for all, especially for also the uh, daily email newsletter, the 21 Hats Morning Report that we publish, um, which tries to aggregate all the most important news of the day for business owners in one place. And it just, you know, like, like through people 
periods like when, when nobody was sure whether they were going to be able to get their PPP loan and are they at the right bank? Should they switch to another bank? We had just a, a wealth of information uh, along those lines, helping people figure it out. So from time to time, I get an email from somebody who says uh, something along the lines of, uh, you know, thank you for your podcast. It's been a lifeline during this difficult period. I don't know if I would have made it through without hearing how others were were navigating this. And, you know, that that just is, has meant so much to me hearing that. You know, I, I've heard from people who say that they, they listen to every episode twice uh, because, you know, they we talk fast, and there's a, a lot that the business, very smart business owners, on it throw out. Uh, they're not always right, but even when they're wrong, they're sharing what they're trying, and you can learn from someone else's experience, even if they don't have all the answers. And I think that's what keeps people uh, coming back to it. So. Um, it's, it's, it's those comments that I've gotten from people who've discovered the podcast, gone back to the beginning and listened to everyone uh, all the way through that, you know, that just means so much to me. I can hear it in your voice. I want to thank you for being a lifeline to so many people. I want to encourage all listeners to take a look at it. If you have folks who are running their own businesses, please do kindly share. Um, and maybe in a sentence or two, Lauren, what was it like for you to share your journey today? You were very open. And I know it's not always so easy. Um, well, you forced me to think about things. I haven't thought about it a long time. Um, back to my childhood. And, um, you know, I guess it was kind of in a way, uh, oddly refreshing because I, I do feel as though I have finally <laughs> matured and, and learned some lessons along the way. And thinking back to the, the kinds of things I struggled with. I mean, I can't imagine uh, sort of I mean, public speaking, forget about it. Um, so to be here talking to you, uh, not as skillfully as you, of course, but uh, doing my best, uh, it, you've reminded me that, you know, I have made some progress along the way and I appreciate that. Uh, it's fantastic to see your own growth for you to be able to articulate that and modeling that for the listeners around the world. I appreciate you, Lauren. Thank you for being part of the solution. Uh, you know how to reach me and you take good care. Thank you. Ah, so inspired. My thought for the week, failure is the key to success. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share the show. Amplify Lauren's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. 
contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem.